Belgium this week? I'm delighted. Uh, we've all liked it too. I have just a couple of quick announcements to make. As you know, my function is to pick up after Barnaby drops things. Uh, and um, he does the introductions, I just do the announcements. Uh, announcement. A Victorian crescent pin was lost at the wine and cheese party on Tuesday night. Pin about three, four inches long, uh, apparently dropped in the grass. If anybody picked it up, Frances Lawrence is the loser and would appreciate getting it back. You can give it to her. Where are you, Fran? Uh, you can give it to her, you can give it to me, you can give it to Mary, you can give it to Barnaby, give it to any one of us and we'll see that she gets it. It's not, <clears throat> it's not all that valuable, we'll see that she gets it. Um, second announcement. Uh, a Mercedes with the license plate MLN 980 uh, had the lights on out in the parking area. Um, third announcement. Those of you workshop leaders or students who have had books at the book stand for sale, uh, books on consignment, or whatever arrangement you made with Penny and Terry Davies. At the end of tonight's session, they would appreciate it if you would meet with them. They will give you the money on whatever books have been sold and give you back the balance of the books. Uh, th this is the last night that they will be here, so you've got to close out your account with them tonight. They will not be here tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, by a strange and peculiar coincidence, we will be meeting at 9 o'clock, not at 10 o'clock, as the original mailing piece said. We will meet at 9 o'clock here in this room for the giving out of the awards. Now, those are the awards for the worst sentence, worst opening sentence. Those are the awards for uh, the best achievement in writing to the title the next time, uh, either in poetry or fiction or nonfiction. There will be workshop awards. There will be everything except awards of merit. Um, uh, nobody, nobody's entitled to an award of merit. Writing, yes. Merit, no. Um, but we will meet at 9 o'clock. We will try to get you out of here by hopefully 10, 10, 15, so that you can check out, pay your incidental bills at the desk, because we don't want those bills, uh, and you can be on the road. We have to um, clear out of here tomorrow morning. And um, we will uh, look forward to seeing you all next year. Uh, we have two, we have a double header tonight, uh, two speakers whom I will not introduce, except to say that they will both be available at separate tables in the lobby after this session is over to autograph their books. Um, and your bookstalls will be open. We recommend buying books. We recommend getting autographs. Um, all right. Um, that's um, all the news for tonight. I turn you over, as usual, to my peerless leader, Barnaby Conrad. Thank you. Thank you. I want to remind you that uh, 
Shelley will be having a pirate workshop as usual. It's your last, last crack at it. Don't come around tomorrow and ask me to read a manuscript. Don't come around asking Shelley to read a manuscript, but he'll be there all night tonight until about five in the morning, starting right after, you, right after the, the book signings out in the lobby. And also I want to tell you, a lot of us had the privilege uh, this week of a new workshop leader to us, Jim Fry, and uh, I've heard nothing but wonderful comments about that. So we welcome him, and I just want to say that he's got a play opening in um, um, a place that I didn't know about, uh, near Downey. It's in Norwalk, California, near, near Downey in um, Nixon country near Whittier. And uh, it's at the Cerritos College, the Burnite Studio, and it opens July 7th. And uh, your education is incomplete if you don't travel down there to see it. It's called The Last Free Man on Earth. And I'll reiterate, nine tomorrow, not 10. 20 people have come up and said that. Um, all right. Now, Chuck Champlin was a, new, was a new workshop leader. It seems like yesterday, but it was several years ago. And he's become, he became instantly such a member of the family. And he's the one that coined the wonderful phrase that I love so much. He wrote me and said, I love this conference. He said, it's become the great punctuation of, of my year. And he's full of good phrases. And I've constantly said to him, why don't you do this professionally, Chuck? Uh, <laughs> Life Magazine and Los Angeles Times uh, forever. Everybody's enjoyed his, his work for so many years. And now he's written an absolutely wonderful book called Back There Where the Past Was. I love that title, Back There Where the Past Was. And <clears throat> we're going to hear about it from Chuck tonight. Thank you. Charles. Thank you. Uh, Barnaby did quote that, that phrase about being the great punctuation of my life. And uh, that's not paid hype, it's not a paid commercial. I said it in a private letter to him and, and said it was okay that he could use it because it's really true. It has, being here this week is, has now come to be the great punctuation of my life. It's a time of renewal for me. Uh, I think that anybody who gives a workshop might admit, as I certainly do, that doing the workshop and just answering questions and being around forces you to think again about what you do and how you do it and why you do it, and uh, particularly, I suppose, why you do it. But uh, in any event, it's, it's just a great time uh, for me, and I think that uh, at this point in the week, you are all suffering from uh, information overload, if not sensory overload, and uh, you want <laughs> just to sort of cool out and, and uh, think about it all and let, let it all settle into place. And I think that uh, what comes away from here, in addition to whatever specifics you pick up, is just the sense of community. Uh, I think of this week as a kind of reward uh, for all the solitude, because writing continues to be a solitude, solitary enterprise. And I think that you come here and you realize whether you're published a lot, published not at all, uh, have only the most distant hopes of being published, or maybe just seem to be right on the verge of it. Nevertheless, you're here and you realize that you're not alone, that there are fellow
sufferers and fellow sharers of the excitements and uh, finally uh, the, the shares in that excitement whether you sell or not of at least uh, getting something that turns out just about the way you want it to turn out and I think for a writer that's just really part of the great great thrill that satisfaction you hope for readers but if the first reader e.g. yourself is satisfied with a particular piece that's really pretty terrific and you get to share those vibrations around here this week uh, my announced topic is digging the past I add for pleasure and profit I suppose but uh, I have uh, uh, some phrases that I have sort of treasured over the years not by me but by other people uh, years ago I ran into this phrase from Evelyn Waugh it's in Brideshead revisited it's at the opening of one of the interior sections he says my theme is memory that winged host that soared above me one gray day in wartime and I just love that memory is a kind of winged host and then there's that opening sentence of L.P. Hartley's novel The Go-Between they made it to a movie with Alan Bates and uh, Julie Christie and he said the past is another country they do things differently there and I think the key phrase is they do things differently there present tense as if the past is always there and something is always going on in a different way. <clears throat> the third phrase that a friend told me, uh, which I have also treasured, is the columnist's motto, waste not, you'll probably want anyway. And <laughs> and uh, when I started writing three columns a week for the uh, LA Times uh, back in 1965, and I've occasionally multiplied three times 50 times 25 times roughly a thousand and uh, it gets up into the millions and it, it's thoroughly intimidating but when I just announced to a friend who did three columns a week that I was going to do three columns a week this is a line that I've told my workshop many times he said well I'll give you a phrase that you can use you will always be asked if you can ever get ahead doing a column and my answer is that doing a column is like sex you can never get ahead but you can fall behind very fast and uh, it is certainly true <laughs> about the column, too, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I must confess that this, this whole book really began uh, from those early morning desperations, uh, finding ideas for columns, because my, I play a kind of journalistic roulette. I can feed my columns uh, now into the paper through the modem, and I get up at 6, and I have a 9 o'clock deadline. By the time I get to the machine, it's about 7 o'clock, so I give myself two hours uh, to write the column and get it down. Dangerous. Uh, sometimes I have <laughs> foolhardy uh, folly, but uh, anyway, I, I've often felt about deadlines that there's something useful about them because the longer the deadline, the more chance you have to get tensed up and nerved. And uh, if you know that you've got to have it out by 9 o'clock, it, it induces a certain kind of frenzied relaxation uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, long ago I'd, I'd just come back from vacation back to my hometown Hammondsport and I just I wrote a column about it because I'd been out of touch with the industry and interviews and stuff and I just wrote about being back at this ancient cottage uh, where nothing is ever thrown away and in a little dark bookcase up on the second floor uh, were these strange volumes, dusty now, of uh, the sermons of the Right Honorable So-and-So, 
and both volumes of Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs, uh, which contain, by the way, an absolutely wonderful phrase, which I commend. I don't know what the rest of the passage is, but a, a, a writer I know uses part of it as the title for a book, Tethered as We Are by the Iron Chain of Circumstance. And uh, uh, Edward Newhouse used the Iron Chain as the title for a collection of short stories, which is where I discovered the quote. Uh, anyway, and uh, in this, uh, there would be magazines from uh, 1933, Delineator, uh, which is uh, kind of wonderful, and paperbacks, paperbacks with the pages gone brown and brittle as potato chips. Uh, and I, I wrote about that, and it was my first writing about Hammond Sport. And as the years went on, I wrote about it many times more, about 36 times, I calculate, roughly, often triggered by the holidays, the 4th of July, and I may sin again next Tuesday, uh, writing about uh, something to do with Hammond Sport on the 4th of July, Labor Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, the great punctuations of the year and the life, Labor Day, because this was a lake town, and all the summer people went home on Labor Day, which added to the general melancholy of Labor Day and back east, knowing that if Labor Day comes, can snow be far behind? And it always was not far behind. But I discovered that people wrote to me, and they said, I liked your column about wherever that place is. It reminded me of Port Angeles, Washington, or Bedford, or Storm Lake, Iowa, Idaho, California, and even not necessarily very small towns, sometimes small cities. They just really found some resonance, the band concerts on Saturday night and the horns blowing, the kids running around, sucking lemons, trying to make the clarinet players. <laughs> so they... Luckily, I didn't play the clarinet then, but uh, that, that kind of thing. And it just occurred to me that maybe there might be some larger audience uh, for these pieces about growing up in a small town in the 30s and in the early 40s. And also, I've discovered something else, that the past, in a sense, spoke to me, because I was just initially writing out of personal reminiscence and my fond and sometimes not so fond memories of, of the small town. And yet, uh, there began to be themes that occurred to me. And in fact, finally, what I think of being uh, the major uh, theme, you might say, of back there where the past was, we are all from someplace else, somewhere in time, and more often than not, in this transient society of ours, some other place. And we never quite get over that sense of being from either time or space. And we never get over quite playing for that audience back home. If they could see me now, or thank God they can't, but uh, <laughs> either way. And uh, that was one of the things. And then I said, well, what is all, what do all these memories and reminiscences mean. And I have come to feel uh, that there was a sense of community back then. Living in a town of 1,200 people, which was 1,200 when I was growing up, and is still 1,200. Uh, as I say in the book, uh, the legend was that it never grew because every time a baby was born, somebody had to leave town. And... Uh, <laughs> Small town life, I think, proceeds by anecdote. A small town is really kind of an extended family, I think. Uh, I grew up with God knows how many dozen aunts and uncles, and I realized only later that most of them were honorary and only a few of them were genuine aunts and uncles, but you just had the feeling that it was that kind of town with a great sense of community. Hammondsport was unique in some ways 
because <coughs> its principal industry was making champagne, which drew unsavory people from all over the country. You know, it was wonderful. And it also made airplanes. And uh, Glenn Curtis of Curtis Wright later was from born and raised in Hammondsport, started with a bicycle shop, made motorcycle motors, and off his motorcycle motors, he was approached by Alexander Graham Bell and some other people from the Aero Association of America who were trying to find an airplane in those days, whether he could make light enough engines to fly a plane, which he did, so that you had a kind of wonderful uh, uh, international atmosphere. We even had a German spy in World War I, it turned out later. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't know it at the time, so we couldn't get his autograph, but... Uh, <laughs> It was very exciting, and my grandmother remembered when Alexander Graham Bell and his wife came to visit the Curtis Airplane Works. They were making the JN-4s, the famous Jenny, which was the great training plane of World War I, and then became a great barnstorming plane just after World War I. But Alexander Graham Bell's wife was deaf, which is why he got interested in the telephone, uh, because he was interested in doing something that would help her hearing. And my grandmother said it was really wonderful, uh, because they went through the factory, uh, my grandparents went along on this sort of guided tour, and it was very noisy in the factory, and the only one that you didn't have to shout at was Mrs. Alexander Graham Bell because she could read lips, and uh, that was her memory of that particular moment. Uh, so that there was that sense of community, and then, of course, I was, in these pieces, always trying to recreate the town as I remembered it with whatever my naivete was, which has continued to this very day, and... Uh, but also, with another part of me, I suppose, trying to look at that town and see what it was that we had both gained and lost over those years. And I think that the sense of community has been somewhat jeopardized, I think considerably jeopardized, maybe a little less in Hammondsport, because one of the things that made Hammondsport, I think, unique was how self-contained it was. Everything was locally owned when I was growing up. It was the Hammondsport Telephone Company. And if you didn't uh, if your telephone service was not up to snuff, uh, you could go over to Arthur uh, Moore's house and knock on his door and say, Artie, darn it, my phone don't work, or something like that, and, and it would be there. And there were also centrals, and as a kid, I used to go up to the telephone office, which is up over uh, Frisk's Barbershop, and watch uh, Central uh, work. And there was Nan Wright, we called her Nan Hot Potato Wright, because uh, she spoke as if she had a hot potato in her mouth, you know, this kind of thing. And it was wonderful. It was like having your own answering service because you'd call up and say, Dr. Cool, please, K-U-H-L, and uh, uh, say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, the doctor's gone up the hill because Mrs. So-and-so is about to deliver, but I can reach him up there or he'll be back in his office in about half an hour or so. And you always know it was just wonderful. It was just terrific and very simple numbers. My number was 87J, I recall, and my grandmother was 4 one And I called up, I said 4-1-R one time, and Nan Wright said, Charles, your grandmother's gone to Elmira today, as you perfectly well know. <laughs> so, uh, what I tried to avoid in, in the book uh, was too much sentimentality. I'm not sure that I've avoided it. And too much nostalgia for its own sake, because it was not all wonderful. I mean, it was a depression, and Hammondsport's depression had started ten years early. Uh, with prohibition because we, we were a wine town and suddenly from 1919 the major industry in the town had shut down and my first conscious memory is of a blue one pound Unita biscuit tin that was filled with little lapel 
metal lapel things that said repeal the 18th Amendment, <laughs> which is a very lively issue in, in Hammersport, as you can be sure. Uh, so I remember the hard times, the homeless, even in then those days, the men, the knights of the road, coming to the back door and asking for something to eat. My mother was then a, a, a divorced single parent raising two small boys and used to get a little nervous because these men obviously looked rough and, uh, and yet they were so gentled and, and uh, humbled by their circumstances that they were just dear and they offered to chop wood or do whatever there was to be done and she would just feed them. And, but anyway, I had those memories of growing up there too. And I think that uh, I've always felt that any writer, uh, particularly any beginning writer, does well to start out with what is closest to home, closest to their own experience, because there's more feeling, there's more information, and then you can move on. And I think that if you're dealing with personal reminiscences, and I've heard some really terrific stuff in my workshop this week of personal reminiscences, and I think that what you hope for is that maybe what you remember of your own life and your own relatives, uh, the sorrows and the joys in your own experience, that they somehow reverberate for a wider audience and, and strike those chords and find those parallel resonances of meaning in other people. And that's what you try to do. Uh, I, I, this is probably uh, not quite kosher, but I thought if, if, if you would forgive me, I would just talk a little bit, uh, uh, read just a, a line or two, <laughs> well, <clears throat> more than that possibly. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, but I think that maybe these are the pieces that, that might particularly uh, find a receptive, responsive hearing in this audience because a little bit about uh, reading and writing and, and how I began to sense early on that uh, maybe this is what I, what I wanted to do. And I said that as the years went on and in the great American tradition, I did whatever I could do to earn pocket money. I peddled the Saturday Post and the Ladies' Home Journal, and for a brief period I sold Scripto ink and mentholatum salve from door to door with conspicuously little success. I mean, I delivered handbills, which is probably the most boring, wearying job ever invented. In one summer, I created a paper route to the cottages, bicycling three or four miles up the lake, back through town, and across down the other side of the lake. Uh, on a, a good day, a very good day, I might sell three or four papers per mile. And uh, it rained a lot. And I think that most of the sales were made simply out of sympathy for the bedraggled fool at the door. You know? uh, but all those hours on the bicycle, like all those winter hours when I used to sit in my bedroom uh, reading on an ancient wicker chaise long, were perfect for developing a fantasy life. And for reasons that even now I can't quite account for, the richest and most persistent fantasy I had was of being a writer. Now, there was nobody in the family on other side, either side who was a writer, so far as I know. And I didn't know any writers. I didn't even know any aspiring writers. Uh, but again and again, I saw myself sitting at the typewriter, puffing a pipe, withdrawing checks from envelopes, and seeing my words in print. I mean, I also fantasized about hitting home runs or playing cornet solos of unbelievable brilliance. But those fantasies were indeed so thoroughly unbelievable that I wasted really very little time on them. A friend of mine once asked, once 
asked Robert Frost when it was that he decided he was a poet. And Frost said, my dear, when did you decide that you were a beautiful woman? Uh, he meant that there was no conscious decision involved, only a recognition of truth that was inescapable. And I've said, and I think it's true, that your first tip-off that you may be a writer uh, comes very early. It's when you decide that you, it's a little easier for you than for your siblings to write those wonderful letters to Aunt Nora, thanking her for that Christmas box of handkerchiefs which you had always wanted, or possibly hadn't. <laughs> uh, I was always a whiz at thank you notes, and it was an early tip-off that uh, maybe I, I was going to do something with putting words together, and after that I was just following the lines of least resistance. And so as I stumbled toward adolescence, I was already becoming a cliché. The would-be writer whose richest life is in the imagination, fired by radio, movies, books, pulp magazines, and all that solitude. Being a writer was its own kind of dream, but it never seemed an impossible dream like meeting Shirley Temple, uh, which I also dreamed about a lot in those days. Uh, some of my adolescent fantasies, including the visions of being a published writer, are as vivid to me now as they were when I first had them. For quite some time, I also wanted to be thought of as inscrutable. Uh, I wanted to hear whisper, people whisper behind my back, that Charles Champlin is so inscrutable. Uh, <laughs> cool and aloof were good, too. Uh, I wanted, in those days, to have a trench coat so I could walk around, hands in pockets, my collar up, looking cool, aloof, and inscrutable, and observing people. Uh, writers are unobtrusive observers, noting everything. I wanted to observe. But the fact is that I only managed to look bored, sallow, and mopey. Uh, once at a Boy Scout meeting, when I must say it's not easy to look inscrutable anyway, uh, my platoon leader asked me if I were feeling sick. Uh, more romantically, I had fantasies of being someone like Flash Gordon, standing his ground on muscular legs in those space-age Dr. Dentons of his, <laughs> and holding evil at bay. My dreamy plot was that only I could protect the girl, whoever she was, from the danger, whatever it was, and in my recurring fantasy, I had my arm around her, keeping the rain off. Uh, this, is, this may have been, I think it probably was, the first manifestation of the lifelong, incurable romantic emerging from the larval stage. So later, but not much later, I really was a precocious reader. Flash Gordon faded away, and I became Lieutenant Henry, walking back to the hotel in the rain from the hospital where Catherine has died in a farewell to arms. The collar of the trench coat is turned up, but the inscrutability is now only a desperate, tragic weariness. I was, I suppose, 14. In real life, I did all the normal things. I played endless hours of catch with my brother Joe, trying to master the curve and the knuckleball. We played softball in the yard and on the diamond behind the old schoolhouse where the Curtis Museum is now. I became a Boy Scout first class with two merit badges that you really didn't have to work for, reading and scholarship. And uh, I went to Boy Scout camp and suffered through overnight hikes when it always rained. I took piano lessons unsuccessfully from Evangeline B. Perry, the Presbyterian minister's wife, 
and I took a, started a correspondence course from the W.L. Evans School of Cartooning in Cleveland, Ohio, famed as the teacher of Chester Gould, and I became student L-3954, but I flunked out, being unable to complete satisfactorily a pen portrait of Theodore Roosevelt, who I think was in office when the course was devised. <laughs> I went swimming at Putnam's Dock at the lakefront on summer afternoons. I learned to assemble and disassemble the new departure brake on my bicycle. It's my first and so far my only mechanical triumph. I bought my first suit, a pepper and salt green tweed, belted in the back with two pair of pants for $25 from Richmond Brothers in Elmira. And I read, and I read, and I read some more, and in the most warming of my fantasies, I heard an editor say, God, this kid is good. <laughs> And I'm waiting. <laughs> so. Just a couple of last thoughts, because I'm as anxious as anybody else is to hear Joe Wambaugh, a writer I much admire. I think that the, the compulsion to write does come on you early. And I think that in many cases, you have to defer it for a while, the business of making a living, doing other things, finding other professions. But I think that once it takes hold of you, it's got you. Uh, Mignon McLaughlin used to write aphorisms for, I think, McCall's magazine. And she said once, anybody can write. The trouble with writers is they can't do anything else. And uh, what she meant was that a writer, a real writer, cannot do anything else and be happy for long. Uh, you, if you write, there is no satisfaction like putting words together, hopefully for publication, but just putting them together. It's an almost sensual pleasure. I'm a compulsive writer. If I don't write every 24 or 48 hours, my eyes begin to water and I kick at old people in the street and I have <laughs> a terrible time. Uh, and I think that, as I said, what one of the reasons that I enjoy coming here so much is that I feel myself within that community of writers. I'm not sure, in fact, I am sure, that you can't teach someone to write who can't write. I think people are born word deaf the way other people are born tone deaf. But I think anyone who has any sensitivity at all to words can be taught, uh, helped to write better, uh, to get over some of the hurdles, to avoid some of the obvious uh, troubles to maybe avoid some of the traps that other people have got into. Uh, and uh, so that, I think, maybe kind of justifies our keep here. And I think that as I listen to material in the workshop, I think this is really fine because people are at their best getting something down on paper that comes from the heart's core. And it is really moving. And I have been, I must say, choked up several times this week by stuff that just seemed to come out of the marrow of the bones and was really wonderful. So I wish you all ongoing success with your compulsions, which I share, and I hope to see a lot of you next year with wonderful things to report. Thank you very, very much. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you.
you spoke of Shirley Temple. We had also hoped to meet Shirley Temple here this year. We invited her to the conference, conference and uh, she said she would come. And uh, then one day, uh, a few weeks ago, I, got, I came home and Mary said, call Shirley Temple. And um, so I called this number in Woodside where she lives and I called at 5.20 and I got her husband, Charlie Black, and he said, oh, listen, Barney, can I call you back? We're at, at dinner. And it was 5.20 in the afternoon. And I said, oh, that's okay, sure, because I thought, you know, I still think she's 11 or 12 and naturally she'd be having dinner at 5.20. I've never met anybody that ate dinner at 5.20, of you? Uh, but that, and he, Charlie called back and he said very good naturedly, he said, we always have dinner at 5.15. And, um, and then he added that Shirley would not be able to come to the conference this year and please give them a rain check because she had to go to, to England. So that's as close as we got to, to Shirley this year. When Joe Wombo came in this, you're not a substitute for, for Shirley, Joe. Um, uh, when Joe Wombo came in this evening, somebody came up and said, but you're so young looking. And he said, all the wrinkles are inside. Uh, and why, why shouldn't he have wrinkles? A cop for 14 years. I've been trying to get Joe for so long. People over the years here have said, when did you get Joe Wamba? And I said, wouldn't I love to? How do you do it? Because he kept saying, I can't talk. I, I hate to make speeches. And I finally said this time, I cornered him uh, by letter and, and then phone. I said, look, you don't have to make a speech. All you have to do is answer questions. It's just a you know, just a, a dozen or so of us that sit around, and uh, uh, that's true. And and I said these workshops are very small, you know. And uh, then as we came closer to the time, I said maybe two dozen, three dozen, maybe. And uh, you just sit there and you and we t we rap. <laughs> um, so um, I tricked him into coming, and he said when he finally got here, he said, "All right, it's still going to be questions and answers." So Joe, would you come up, Joe Wombo? Can I get you for this? Yeah. <laughs> I'll ask you the first question if you want. Thank you. All right. I'm going to ask you a question. You ready? Ready. Um, <laughs> I've, um, I've met a lot of uh, fiction writers who could write nonfiction very, very well. Paul Theroux, et cetera, et cetera but I haven't met many nonfiction writers that could turn to fiction and do as good a job that way. How come you can do both? Uh, how do you, do you see a big, great difference between the two? Okay, I think that, um, I think fiction is creating and I think nonfiction is recreating. Uh, that's not to say that there's not a lot of creative activity going on when you're writing nonfiction, but um, there are certain rules, um, there are certain boundaries beyond which you can't go. Um, 
when I do nonfiction, I've, uh, I'm thinking of real people whom I've interviewed and whom I know as intimately as I can get to know them. And uh, everything I do, uh, when I try to bring them to life, um, is done with uh, certain guidelines, certain limits. I think, well, is this the way he or she talks, thinks, feels? Uh, it, it's limiting in one sense, but on the other hand, my imagination is woefully finite, and I cannot write novels all the time. And that's why sometimes uh, I turn to nonfiction, frankly, because I can't think of what to write uh, in terms of a novel. Are you as happy, for example, with um, The Blooding, which is, incidentally, if you haven't read, is, I think, one of your great books. Uh, I absolutely loved it because I love the forensic part and so forth. Are you as happy with The Blooding as, say, one of your novels? I am um, immediately upon completion of them. But when I think back, and by the way, I never go back and look at one of my books because uh, they're too filled with mistakes and, and, you know, things I should have done better. And, you know, it's that, that old story. I can't, I can't ever look at one of my books after they're finished. But when I think about them, you know, and, and I, I forgive myself when I'm thinking back on them. I forget all the bad writing I did. I think of the good writing that I think I did. <laughs> Uh, and I always am able to do that better with novels. The novels become um, more alive to me, I think, in retrospect, than does the nonfiction. But I, it's easier for me to talk about nonfiction, you know. I, I haven't publicized a book in quite a while, but I went out and publicized The Blooding. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it, it, it takes place in England. It's a true crime story. I went to England and researched it and all that. And it was quite a challenge, you know, writing in a foreign language. And, and I, 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 uh, I, I publicized it because it was about the discovery of something which is going to change your world and mine called uh, genetic fingerprinting or DNA fingerprinting. It's in the news almost every day now. Uh, and this is about the discovery of it and its use and, and um, in, in its first test. In case they don't know what it is. Well, very briefly, it's now possible to identify one human being out of all others on the face of the earth on the basis of blood, semen, tissue, hair root, uh, bone. Even It's even getting down to saliva, urine. Uh, this is an incredible discovery. You can imagine its potential in forensics. And in, in any case, it was used in a very interesting Agatha Christie-type murder case in its first real test. So I ran over to England, and I researched it and I wrote about it. I was able to publicize that book for my publisher and myself because I wasn't talking about myself or my characters that I created. So th that's another way that nonfiction differs, I think. I, I think of it differently. Uh, it was very easy for me to go on a Larry King. Somebody said they saw tonight, they saw me on Larry King, or any show, or, or do any interview and talk about that because I was talking about living people, people whom I met. I was talking about an incredible scientific discovery. I wasn't talking about people that I created, you know, uh, and it was much easier for me. I, I, I just think of the two uh, methods of writing in entirely different terms. Um, they're both challenging and they're both very creative. My wife 
can tell you that it's much more difficult to type, for her to type, fiction. Because when I write a novel, there's a lot more editing, a whole lot more editing. There's a lot of things changing it, and it's going back and forth between my editor and me. And I, I'm changing my mind every day, every hour, and I'm rewriting constantly. And, and she doesn't have all that problem when she's typing uh, smooth typing you know I rough type when she's smooth typing my nonfiction you know and it gets back to the idea that I'm recreating instead of creating uh, I don't know if that's helpful Jim Fry had a question Jim are you hereby nearby oh Chuck Champlin knows that old story uh, I, I, th there was only one movie that I hated, you know. I sort of got bum-wrapped a, uh, a bit as though I bad-mouthed Hollywood all the time. I didn't. I, I drank more in those days, and I was immature. Now I'm very mature, and I drink hardly at all. But I didn't like The Choir Boys, you know. That was a rotten, lousy, sleazy, disgusting movie. This is, a, this, is a, this is a mature man speaking now. Yes, sir. Uh, why did I swear that I... Because, because I, I, I lied. I was immature. I, I have produced another <laughs> one since then and wrote, a, I wrote one since then. In fact, a couple. I wrote a mini-series that was on last year last year last year I think it was last year uh, echoes in the darkness uh, I wrote that and had a hand in producing that um, I uh, I had the naive idea you know that uh, a person should get involved in uh, uh, production of his own work and when it's translate to the screen you know write the screenplay and do it and I was even stupid enough to put some money in into the onion field and uh, another one the black marble and it seems as though everybody I've ever talked to between here and and Europe and everywhere else has seen the onion field and yet we never we never received one dollar of profit and yet everybody's seen it so there's a lot to learn uh, about making movies other than uh, the writing of them way back there Bill Downey? Yes. Good. You know, I think we're, I mean, I, you know, we're, we're a people do, we do not lend ourselves to conspiracy very well, you know. I mean, you get two of us together and that's the end of the secret, right? I and mean, we're blabbermouths. And I think writers are probably, you know, more so even. Uh, when I was in England uh, researching uh, the blooding, you know, I discovered that the English are very different from us, very, you know, we mustn't think that because we go over there and visit once in a while and, you know, we think we know England, that uh, um, we're all the same. We are not all the same, and uh, they are very reticent people. They are very unlike us, and as a matter of fact, reticence is a virtue, and over there, <laughs> and when, when you have to research a, a nonfiction book, as I did over there, it was a whole different story than researching one here. Whereas here, if I would talk to someone about you know, a crime, for instance, 
uh, you can't shut them up. I mean, they want to they want to tell you more than you ever want to hear about themselves. And, uh, and but in England, you you have to break down this reticence, and it's very tough. They might tell you, well, come and see me a week from Thursday, and we'll talk. Well, you're in a hotel freezing to death in the Midlands, and you know a B and B. It's like living in an Irish castle. I can tell you in February, and and you, you don't have until a week from Thursday, and you have to find ways to break it down. But this is, uh, uh, getting back to your question, uh, there, was n there, there are no secrets. Uh, there are no secrets in police work. And um, in, any, in any aspect of it, I don't think. As a matter of fact, uh, as we've learned, there's no secrets anywhere in Washington or any place else in this country, right? Anybody who thinks he can keep a secret is a fool. There's one right there. Yes, ma'am. Oh, it, it's just a novel. I'm just, I'm, I'm finishing, I'm finishing up a novel now. It, it, it takes place in Newport Beach. It's called The Golden Orange. You know, Newport Beach is on the Gold Coast of California, Orange County, hence the title. That's all. Can I help you with any questions about writing your, your work, writing or anything at all? It'll help you. Yes, sir. Well, uh, I kept her around for 34 years, or she kept me around for 34 years, and that's, that probably helps. I mean, what else is there to do after 34 years of marriage? Yes, anybody else? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> uh, I, you know, my, my professional life brings me in contact with policemen, uh, not just in the writing of non- reader to be a writer I I just it was full of energy in those days I'm not the battered hulk you see before you now I, and the, I was I was just burning with energy I really always had to be doing something if I wasn't if I wasn't uh, uh, going to college uh, you know getting uh, degrees in English I was studying Spanish or I was I was selling suits I was you know, as a full-time cop, I mean, this is in my spare time, you know, I was doing something, you know, working the Rose Parade and traffic and all that. Uh, I was one of the guys behind the horses. Even though I worked for LAPD, I went to Pasadena every year to work the Rose Parade. I was always busy, you know, and finally I just decided, well, I'll fool around with it. But I never went into it with the idea, as I think I, I've gleaned from, from the short time I've been here, some of you may have gone into it for thinking about um, publication for profit. I never considered for one moment, I kid you not, that I would ever make any money from this. I just thought that if I could get one story published, like a short story, it would be such an honor, you know, published anywhere, that that would be enough to hold me, you know, to take care of some of this I guess creative energy that I seem to have um, uh, bouncing around, and that's all I ever wanted to do was have one story published anywhere. Tell us about that. Well, I, I wrote short stories. I wrote about six of them, 
and I sent them to every magazine in the country. I started, I, I started from the bottom. I didn't start from the top and work down. I did it the other way. I was humble. <laughs> I I, uh, I sent them to, uh, you know, I got writer's guide, and I sent them to the places that would pay a penny a word, not because I was after a penny a word, but because I thought it maybe be easier to get published here than, you know, going someplace big. And everybody rejected me, and I just kept sending them in and sending them in, sending them in. I sent one to Playboy, I, I recall, and uh, and then I sent it again about a year later, you know, and some some cruel bastard at Playboy sent it back to me and said, it's no better this time than it was last time. <laughs> I wish I'd have saved his name, you know. I'm, I'm powerful now. I could get revenge. <laughs> um, yes, but in any case, uh, that's how it started. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I'm finished. Tom Wolf. Yes, sir. Three to four months. Any book. Fiction, nonfiction, doesn't matter. Yes. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, the problems I, I, I would have, what problems did I encounter writing about something I was very close to? Police work. Um, I did encounter a lot of problems because my first books aren't very good. I think there's a lot of energy in them as I look back, uh, but I don't think they're very well written. Um, part of the reason being not just that I was a beginning writer, but that I was still a policeman. And I think that I maybe unconsciously approached writing in those days um, uh, on a slightly higher level than I approached my other off-duty jobs, you know, selling suits and stuff like that. Didn't I think you were a pretty strange bird um, on the force? Well, yeah, they didn't know about my writing. I didn't tell anybody about it. Nobody knew I was a writer. I was, I was a closet writer. Nobody until the first book was uh, two weeks day? from publication. The New Centurions was the first book. What and that, it, that was it. The short stories never sold. To this day. <laughs> In fact, I turned a couple of them into novels. They were the germs for, I had one called The Blue Knight, uh, and I turned that into a novel. I had another one that was a germ of the choir boys, and... Uh, and uh, nobody knew I was uh, I was writing. Nobody. Uh, but when the you know when the book was about to be published, Book of the Month Club picked it up as a main selection. You know I thought I would better tell somebody. Uh, so what was that question? Now I mean I didn't, I don't think I addressed the question. What, what was? Oh yeah. So that's why I, I don't think that the first books were as good as the later books because I think. I was unconsciously treating it something like a moonlighting job instead of writing them like a writer should write them. I think I was, uh, I don't think I felt like a writer, um, I, and uh, I, I think they're clumsy and you know, somewhat amateurish, 
But also, I'll tell you something else, I didn't have the editor then that I have now. Uh, now I have a very, very tough editor, and that's very important, and if you're lucky enough to ever find one, you should never l let her go. In my case, it's a woman. A woman edits my books and, and has for the, for the past uh, ten books. Uh, her name's Jean Bernkoff, and she's a lot tougher than my first male editors were when I was writing um, my first couple books as a cop. She came with me. I found her when I started, when I wrote The Onion Field, and from then on I think the quality of my work uh, increased dramatically, one, because I had a good, tough editor, and two, because I left the police department after The Onion Field. And I think my, my first really good book, I think, as good as I can write a book, is The Choir Boys, I think, because I was sort of set free. I was no longer a cop, and I could really be a writer, you know, instead of a moonlighting cop. Are we running out of time? Or? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Every day until I get tired. I... I when I'm writing a book, I don't do anything else. That's a seven-day-a-week job, and I don't do a thing until it's finished. Look at it this way. If you'll just sit down and do four double-spaced typewritten pages a day, and you can do it, if you'll just do that much, that's a thousand words a day, right? So you can have a book finished in three, four months. That is, at least you'll have the rough draft. See, I write a lot more than that. But if you only do that much, you can have the rough draft sitting there finished in three to four months. Well, once you have the rough draft, then it's not so intimidating, is it? I mean, there it's sitting there and you're looking at this big pile of stuff that you can rework. And it won't be so frightening, you know? So if you can just discipline yourself to sit there and do those four double-spaced typewritten pages, you've done a thousand words a day. You'll be finished in three or four months with an average-sized book. That is, you'll be through with a rough draft. And that's the thing to fear, isn't it? The blank page. Well, you won't have to fear the blank page anymore. Then you can fool around with it if you want to and do everything else you have to do in life. Yes? No, I tried that a few times. I tried outlining and... Uh, and, you know, the characters start taking over and doing what they want to do anyway. And uh, outlining never worked for me. Even in nonfiction, by the way. However, when I do nonfiction, and I, I don't know if this will help you, but nonfiction requires so much research, so voluminous re the research, and so many interviews and all of that. And if you, you have to try to obviously make it coherent, and it's incoherent when you have this pile of stuff and tapes and everything I I just take a pair of scissors and I cut out snippets of every little relevant thing so I have thousands of little things and then I take a wall like this in my house and I cover it with butcher paper like from the butcher shop so that I don't mess up the walls and the wallpaper and then just with scotch tape I tape these snippets in chronological order or in some coherent order all over the walls you know down the halls, down the steps, ceilings, mirrors, every place, but in an order that I can follow. That's the only outline that I've had any success with, and that's for nonfiction, you know, trying to 
trying to make coherent all of the incoherent experiences I gathered in writing the book, you know? I'm saying you know a lot, you know? Yes, sir. I don't, I, I'm not a public speaker as you, you have discovered, yes. I majored in English before I uh, went in the police department and during. I got my master's degree in English when I was a policeman. Uh, so I guess that's majoring in, I mean, I, I formally didn't take, uh, I think I took one writing class, uh, but everything else was lit classes, you know. I studied a lot of uh, other writers, a lot of better writers, yes. No, I sent it to uh, I, I sent it to the people who asked for it. You see, when I started at the bottom with the magazines, who all rejected me, you know, and then was hurt so brutally by Playboy, I I just said, all right, to hell with it. I'm going to go to a literary magazine and see what happens. And I went to the Atlantic Monthly, and lo, uh, although they didn't publish my stuff, they encouraged it and. Uh, uh, an elderly um, editor there, very famous one, Chuck knows Edward Weeks, who I think was Hemingway's first uh, editor of a short story. That's how old he, he is. Uh, he encouraged me to try a novel. You know, he said, I, I just can't seem to contain my work in a short story. So about, uh, I would say about 60 or 70 days later he had a novel on his desk and he, he, he and uh, what was the question again I don't know I, I'm no good at this oh oh yes okay so I, I he didn't respond to me for a long time uh, like you know three four months he was busy doing other things and I got discouraged and sent a carbon to another publisher and they sent me a quick rejection so then I waited for him <laughs> when he when he came to my house he he came from Boston to our little house we had in Walnut I'll never forget we had lunch for him and you know top top's wife we we had paper napkins I'll never forget and he talked a lot and he was sitting there during lunch about to present us with our check, and it was $4,000. Uh, and uh, he kept wiping his mouth with his paper napkin and talking about all these people, you know, Hemingway and Tom, Thomas Wolfe and everybody he'd known through life and talking and talking and wiping his mouth. My wife to this day talks about it. She was a nervous wreck because the paper napkin was in shreds and it was sticking to his face. You know, this distinguished old guy from Boston with his <laughs> just stuck to him everywhere you know and it and it at the end of it all you he he needed vacuumed and he gave us the check but that that was still those are the greatest days you know I that was the biggest thrill of all was the first the, the, the first uh, having the first thing published nothing else can touch it nothing ever will nothing will ever touch it for me personally you know it's an experience are we running out of time now? No, no. <laughs> yes, ma'am. If you don't keep going, I'm going to get Shirley Temple. Yes, ma'am. 
Uh, yes, the question is, did, uh, did writing police reports help me with my, it helped me with my fiction and my nonfiction. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have female, could we look forward to an interesting female character? Yes, I do have a female character in my next book that plays a larger role than, than they usually do in my stuff. I, I wrote a, a female character in the black marble in a larger way than I ever had, she, a police woman. But that's true. I usually uh, I write more about men than women. There's, there's no question about that. Yes. Yes, I wanted to use a pseudonym. Uh, and for whatever reason, my publisher uh, strongly suggested that I don't. And I was doing anything they asked me to do for that first book. But I wanted to use a pseudonym because I was afraid that if by any chance I got lucky and was published, that I might run into some problems with the police department, which I did. Oh, they, well, no one had ever done this before. And they, you know, they didn't know what to make of it, but uh, they got over it after the, the press came to my defense and leaned on them. Yes, sir. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Why the big interest in true crime? Why the big interest in true crime? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if there's a bigger interest. Uh, maybe there have been some better uh, writers doing true crime. The first... Uh, yeah. I think Truman Capote's In Cold Blood is still the best uh, book ever written uh, about a true crime. And he sort of showed the possibilities of writing nonfiction in a dramatic style like fiction. Uh, and I think, uh, I think he sort of opened the door for a lot of people. But uh, I'm not sure that it's going to keep going, you know. I have a feeling that uh, it's sort of running its course. And, you know, you can only read about so many horrible people and murders and all that. Uh, and you, pretty soon you want to get away from it because I don't know if it's art imitating life or life imitating art or, or whatever it is, but uh, you know, we have more serial murders now in California alone than we had in the world when, when I was young. And, and you know, it's, uh, I think maybe people might think enough is enough pretty soon. Oh. You know, cr crime is never interesting. Actually, the people who commit crimes are usually boring people, very boring people. They're sociopaths, they're predictable. Uh, they have the same clinical symptoms, uh, but sometimes they do something which, though it's not interesting in itself, it lends itself toward drama. For example, the two uh, small-time thugs who, who killed, kidnapped and killed the policeman in the onion field didn't do anything very interesting. But the surviving officer's response to his partner's murder, for which he was made to feel guilty by his police department, broke him and gave him such an enormous guilt complex that he was going around shoplifting compulsively guilt crying out for punishment. That's interesting dramatically. When I was a policeman, 
and he was arrested and fired as a thief. I mean, it seemed fairly obvious to me that this could possibly uh, be some, some, some sort of, um, some sort of uh, symptom at work resulting from what he'd been through in the onion field. So that's what these criminals do. They don't do anything interesting in, in and of themselves, they, but they, they, they stimulate drama. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I really would. Yes, I would. I really would. Yes, ma'am. One more. No, I don't. I use a typewriter. I don't know anything about electronics. So when I'm finished with the entire book, then she uh, looks at it. Then we go back and forth. My wife. Uh, she doesn't have any training, but she's... Uh, has good instincts to, for, for, for uh, a story. She's only a high school graduate. She hasn't taken lit classes. So, and you don't need to have someone uh, who's university trained. You need a, just a good reader. Okay, thank you very much, folks. Uh, uh, wonderful, Joe. Thank you so much. Now we're going to make him work some more out in the lobby. He'll sign your book so kindly. What Joe said about the editor, someone told me when I was beginning, they said, if you can find a good editor, breed him. <laughs> uh, that, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Now we're going to break a line right straight through there.